We're talking about heel marks in the sand. We're examining the tracks of the Israelites through the wilderness. We see as they're moving from Egypt to the promised land that there are signs of resistance, that there are heel marks in the sand. And then the question we're trying to figure out and answer is why? Why the spiritual resistance? Unfortunately, the Bible provides us with an answer. Here's what it says. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. It says, let us therefore be, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Apparently what happened as far as this writer is concerned and the reason for the grumbling and the fault finding and the resentment and the rebellion and all the things they struggled with, it boils down to this. They never figured out how to enter God's rest because they couldn't enter God's rest, because they never really were able to figure that out. That was the reason for the grumbling. That was the reason for the resentment. That was the reason for the remorse, for the fault-finding, for the disappointment, for the disillusionment, for the disbelief. At the root of the inability to enter rest, and this is important to know, Thoreau says, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one striking at the root. What he's saying, it's common to try to fix the problem that's not the problem. That's not at the root of the problem. That's the fruit of the problem. What he's saying, we, we have a tendency to fix things that aren't really at the heart of the matter. We address things that aren't really the issue. Applied spiritually, we try to not do things that are bad for us, which is, it makes sense to a certain degree. We try to do things that are good for us, which makes sense as well. But these are branches, the writer to the Hebrew says. They're not really at the root of the issue. What's at the root of the issue? It's at the root of the fact that we don't tend to do things we want to do. And we do things we don't want to do. What this writer is saying? The inability to enter God's rest. That's at the heart of it. Um, so here's the question. How do we do that? How do we strike at the root of the problem? What it says, therefore, and as this passage goes on, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In order to receive mercy and find grace to help, would, would you agree with me? Those would be really good things to experience. Think about your life. Receiving mercy from God. Finding grace to help. That would be good, wouldn't it? It describes 
Um, we need to, in order to receive mercy and find grace, it says we need to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let me tell you what that word confidence means. It's a word that describes being able to enter into the chambers of someone in authority. And not just to enter into the chambers, but to speak freely there. And when it describes it with respect to God, what it's saying, in order to enter God's rest, we need to figure out to learn. Learn. We don't, this doesn't come naturally. We need to learn how to come into God's presence and not just come into his presence, but when we're in his presence to speak freely about the things that are troubling us. The word confidence, it's the right a Roman had to be able to speak up in a public assembly. If you were a Roman citizen, you had this freedom. And if there was a meeting and you disagreed with something, you could be heard. If you weren't a Roman citizen, it would be dangerous to speak freely. But if you were a Roman citizen, you could speak freely. Nobody's going to do anything to you. That's the word confidence. Again, it's the ability not only to enter, but to be heard. We have to learn, apparently, to enter God's rest. We have to learn to talk to God about our struggles, about our disappointments, about the things we're wrestling with. Entering God's rest is a function of learning to come into God's presence and to speak freely with him about the things we're struggling with. It's not only a nice thing, that's necessary. That's how we enter God's rest. We talked to somebody recently who is in recovery from meth addiction, has been for several years now, talked about how important it has been in recovery, to learn to talk to God. Described that in recovery, and as he has been in recovery, thoughts and feelings that weren't as clear when he was in addiction, active, active addiction, now his thoughts and feelings were less confused. They were more obvious to him. They were clearer. He had to learn to feel things he didn't want to feel. And he just couldn't run to meth in this case to not feel what he didn't want to feel. He had to learn to think things he didn't want to think. And what he said, when I talked to him, being able to learn to talk to God in a time of need in order to be able to stay in recovery has been critical for him. Again, it's interesting to me that when in addiction, his thoughts and feelings weren't as clear. But now that they were clear, he had to not only figure out how to acknowledge what he was thinking and feeling, not push it down, not blame it on others, but just acknowledge what he was thinking and feeling. And he had to learn to talk to God about these things. He says that has been critical to him in order to remain in recovery. In this passage, we are told to enter God's rest, and we are given two things to focus on that help us to do so. How do we enter God's rest? We have two things that we're given. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. 
in order to enter God's rest, two things you need to grab onto. Jesus' sympathy and the Father's sovereignty. Here's what it says. We do not have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Why did Jesus need to come to the earth? How would you answer that question? This Friday we'll talk about why he needed to die. That's not what this passage is describing. He didn't need to just die. He needed to be born into a human body. Why? He needed to learn to deal with restlessness and agitation. Why? So he could sympathize with us. That's what it suggests. Jesus experienced restlessness. And what this verse indicates, the inability to enter God's rest, that's at the root of spiritual problems. It makes sense then, in order to be able to enter God's rest, we have to acknowledge our restlessness and talk to God about it. And that's what Jesus had to learn to do. It says, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. You know, angels are unembodied spirit beings, spirit beings that don't live in a body. We are embodied spirit beings, spirit beings that live in a body. Jesus didn't come to help angels. If he came to help angels, he wouldn't need to be in a body. He came to help you and I. That's why Jesus, when he came, he's like us. And he, he was an embodied spirit being. Is he still an embodied spirit being? Yeah, because he was raised physically from the grave. He had to become like us so that he could sympathize with us. And that's why Jesus can deal gently with us. That's why he deals he learned to deal gently with himself. And he can deal gently with us. Not only the sympathy of the Son, that's one of them. The second thing is the sovereignty of the Father. At the last verse, it says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Remember what that means? The word confidence, the right of a Roman citizen? Not only to come into the presence of the king, governor, whoever, in our case, God, but to speak freely. And again, that is not just God being nice. It's apparently necessary to learn to do that because that's how we enter rest. And if we enter rest, that gets to the root of the thing. Um, it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Talk about the sovereignty of the Father is this verse says, be still, be still, and know that I am God. Coming before somebody in control, this is an appropriate response. What be still means, it means to cease striving. Pause. Before you fix the situation, before you try to fix what you feel inside, before you try to get somebody else to change something, we restlessly want to fix something, but what God tells us is, 
be still. We've talked about what it means. I'll show you what this means. It's really kind of awkward. Take your hands, make clear your hands, right? and let your hands hang limp at your side. Just try this. Let your arms hang limp at your side. It really feels odd. We don't do this very often. We, you know, we always have a phone, or we're always doing something, or we're always pointing. Okay, you can stop doing that. It's really, it does it. It really feels kind of strange. That's what. That's literally what be still means. But God says, pause. You're feeling things that are turbulent inside. Pause. Be still. Don't fix anything just yet. He says, I am God. And what he says, not only he is God, but the reason we can be still says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And what God tells us in the middle of all the chaos that we're experiencing, what God's saying, I got this. And what he would and as we look at him, he's at rest. He's not panicked. We get panicked. Of course we get panicked. God doesn't. And what Jesus learned, he learned to look to the Father, and he learned to enter his Father's rest. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. These are binoculars. You know the way binoculars work. There's two lenses. And you'd think that if you look through these two lenses, you'd get two different images, but, you know, they kind of coalesces into one image. Want to bring God into focus? Two things. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. The sympathy of the Son, the sovereignty of the Father, as you look towards God, kind of bring both of those into focus it's important if we hold on to sympathy, but not sovereignty, then God's not strong enough and we can't rest. If we hold on to sovereignty, but not sympathy, then God's strong enough, but he's not loving enough. In order to find rest, we need to know the person we're coming to is both strong and and loving. We need both. Sympathetic and sovereign. We need both. And when we dial God in, that's what he wants us to dial in. In order to approach the throne of grace and speak freely, in order to experience rest, two things about God. Can you remember them? One of them has to do with Jesus, the sympathy. He's an embodied spirit being like us, he gets it. The sympathy of the Son, the sovereignty of the Father. Dialing those things will help us learn to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Strangely enough, this is what Jesus had to learn to do. To, to come to God in a time of struggle. Here's what it says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's striking to me, this is the only place in the Bible I'm aware where we're told Jesus had to learn anything. 
I mean, he was God. What did he have to learn? He had to learn to exist in a body, and he had to learn when he felt the kind of things we feel, the rush of adrenaline and fear. He had to learn when he felt the things we felt. He had to learn obedience. What obedience means, it's not doing the right thing. That word obedience is under listening. Literally, he learned under listening. What does that mean? He learned in the chaos of life to tune into the Father, to think about him and his sympathy and sovereignty, to talk to him. Jesus had to learn this. This does not come naturally for us. If you're saying, Mike, I don't know how to do that. We don't know how to do that. That's what, it's something we have to learn. When we're struggling, we have to learn to enter God's rest, to cling to the sympathy and sovereignty, and to talk freely with God. It's not something that will come easy, but practice. Jesus did. He approached God with loud cries and tears, not just at the end of his life, but during his life. This isn't just telling us about what he did at the end of his life. The fact is, he was able to approach God at the end of his life because he learned to approach God during the course of his life. If we wait for a crisis to try to draw near to God, we haven't built up the approach muscles. It's something that we have to do in non-crisis times and crisis times as we grow. Jesus had to learn obedience, and he didn't learn it all at once. It allowed him the, the ability to do this, being able to approach God and speak freely with him. It allowed him to treat himself more gently and others more gently. Um, we see this gentleness on Palm Sunday. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus had come from a village several miles away when he where he had just raised somebody from the dead, and a crowd followed him from that miracle to Jerusalem. They were bringing palm branches, and they were waving them, and people who were in the city, they came out to meet this entourage, and they were waving palm branches. And they're thinking back two centuries, when they gained their independence from foreign rule, Israel for 600 years had been passed from one empire to another. They had one shining moment. One shining moment, a hundred-year span that was provoked and promoted by Judas Maccabeus, who created a revolt and threw off Greece as a ruler. Coins were minted for the occasion, so they threw off foreign rule, and they were politically free, finally, for a hundred years, before the, they went back under the dominion of Rome. They, for the in order to celebrate that, they minted coins with symbols of that victory, and the symbols were palm branches. Palm branches. 
that it it has the sense of political freedom. That's the way they that's what they associated it with. They said Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save us. And this and when they were saying this, Hosanna, Hosanna, it wasn't spiritual salvation. That's not what they were thinking, of course. It was political salvation they were thinking about. Help us get back to the place we were when Judas Maccabeus threw over the the Greek Empire and we were able to be self-determining and they wanted to get back to that place because after that hundred years they came back under the dominion of Rome and that's where they were at the time Jesus came and so Jesus is the king coming in the name of the Lord and they're saying Hosanna save us we don't want to be under the dominion of Rome be the Messiah King that's what they were thinking save us from Roman domination Save us politically. And as Jesus came in, they're shouting and they're crying out. And Jesus' reaction is very different. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what will bring you peace. Peace. Where does peace come from? But Jesus indicated that to these individuals, it was hidden from their eyes. What ends up happening, Jesus is seeing 40 years into the future. At this time, he's looking 40 years and everybody's waving branches and save us, Jesus. And what he's looking ahead to, he knew what was going to happen. In 70 AD, the Roman government squelched the revolt of Israel and Jerusalem and completely tore apart the city. So Jesus sees what will happen. He imagines the carnage and the destruction, and this is a really strange scene. They're all cheering and laughing and Hosanna. And if we focus in on Jesus, he is sobbing. They're shouting and glad, and and he's sobbing because he knows what's going to happen. The peace they are looking for is earthly. It's peace that comes from an earthly kingdom. The peace Jesus is extending to them is heavenly. Hard to think of heaven. But they are too caught up with visions of earthly peace to take the thought of peace on the far side to, to take that seriously. The happiness they want is only found, really, on the far side of the grave. Seems that we need to be careful when marrying God to political progress and earthly liberation, no matter what that means to you, if it means left or right, marrying God to political progress, earthly liberation, that's what they were doing. And that's not what Jesus was doing. There is, There will come a time, though, when there will be happiness. And here's what it says. It's in the last book of the Bible. It's describing what happens on the far side. After this, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, 
standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, who is Jesus, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Goes on to describe what it was like, what it will be like there. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, we find people waving palm branches like they did. Hosanna, save us, Jesus. But this is a different situation. It's different because of two, two things. These people who arrive on the far side did not have easy lives. Didn't have easy lives. The second thing, though, and more significantly, when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he represented God, and God was sobbing. But here, God is not crying. Not only is God not crying, he is drying their tears. Not just some of them, all of them. The kingdom that features happiness is the kingdom of heaven. Again, be careful about marrying God to political processes and earthly liberation. It's not where God lives. He doesn't live on the right or the right, on the left or the right. He's not red or blue. His kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. What he says, on this side of eternity, peace doesn't mean the absence of troubles. We are going, well, look what he says. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take care, I've overcome the world. You know what he wants us to do? To not dismiss our troubles. To not pretend things are better than they are. He wants us to identify the things we're struggling with. And then he wants us to think about, well, do you remember the two things? The thing to to focus in on, or to draw close. Do you remember the two things? The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. The sympathy of the Son. You say, why should I think about that? Because as we tune in, the sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father, that God is not just strong, He's loving. What it allows us to learn to do is to be still, just for a minute. There's things we're going to have to do. We're going to have to make the phone call. There's things we have to do to correct problems. Do you agree? There's crises. We have to talk to somebody. We have to find a solution. Before we find the solution, what he says, stop. Let your arms hang limp at your side. And this is what he says. Think about this. I am God is what God wants us to think. I am God. I will be exalted in the heavens and on the earth. I got this. And here's what I want from you. I want you to learn to approach the throne of grace and talk to me. 
about what you're struggling with before you make the phone call. It doesn't have to last forever, but learn to dial God in. Why should we do that? Because that's how we enter God's rest. And entering God's rest is at the heart of everything. As we learn that, we'll find ourselves doing more what we want to do, not doing what, because that's at the root of it. That's at the root of it. Let's stand for closing prayer. <laughs> entering God's rest leads to gentleness. It also leads to humility, and that's what we'll think about on Friday. We pray for us. God, this is what you want. You want us to learn to approach the throne of grace and speak freely. To learn to enter your rest when we are restless. Jesus experienced restlessness and learned to talk to you about that with loud cries and tears. And it's what you want for us to learn. To learn when we are restless, to learn to come. It doesn't mean we don't do things, but we insert a step. Don't just call. Don't just dial the phone or to stop and to think about the fact that you are sympathetic and sovereign and you want us to approach the throne of grace and learn to talk to you about things. This takes time, but it gets to the root of the issue. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.